Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and explore what the world might look like on the other side of Web3 adoption. Before we hop into the show, a quick thank you to the sponsors that make this episode possible. On this show, we talk all about the human side of Web3 and the philosophy around Web3, but when you're ready to get your hands dirty, Rabbit Hole is the place to go. Rabbit Hole curates all of the wildness of Web3 into one simple place where users can go to be directed towards positive sum protocols and build their skill set as they do it. You can check it out at rabbithole.gg. Thank you, Rabbit Hole, for sponsoring On the Other Side. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with John Wu from Aztec Network. John, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Jace. So I can't wait to dive in to privacy and encryption and all of the things. But before we do that, maybe you could give a little bit of context um, on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole. And I will say, I think people get bored of this question. Um, So maybe throw something spicy in there. Like what was the real draw for you to crypto and what really brought you here? And maybe maybe a little alpha on what you don't usually share about your crypto journey. Mm, Spicy. (laughs) <laughs> um, well, let's see. I started my career very traditionally. I did consulting and private equity. So I was on, you know, in institutional finance. I worked for a buy side firm. Um, and then I went to business schools. I was very boring suit, you know, big tradvi energy. <laughs> and and then I did a couple startups. And the way I fell down the crypto rabbit hole is actually via Twitter. So I recognized that Twitter was really important and that distribution and narrative was really important. And so I actually started my Twitter journey by tweeting about real estate because I've done some stints in real estate um, and am a landlord myself. And just like no one cared, you know, I really was taught the definition of product market fit. Um, Just I felt like I was writing good content and no one cared. Mm. And at the same time, um, I had some friends who were pilling me on Uniswap at the time. So this was like late 2020, early 2021. And I was like, this is an insane technology. Just like permissionless finance was insane because um, coming from traditional finance, like everything's gated, you know, everything's relationships. Um, Banks would come pitch us all the time. You know, we would get preferred deals because somebody knew somebody or, you know, went to school together when, you know, they were 16. And so I was getting pilled on that. And then I just started writing my thoughts on a couple DeFi protocols. Um, Back in the day, this was like Ohm. Um, uh, and, and a couple stable coins and there was like instant product market fit. People were like, yeah, we want to understand this crazy wild technology. So that was kind mm-hmm. of my in and I kind of remained addicted to it because, um, freedom and autonomy are really core personal values of mine. Um, and that's what crypto is all about. And that's kind of how I ended up in the privacy corner of the space as well. Yeah. I would love to hear more about do you feel like you had a separate privacy journey almost, or do you think it, do you sort of equate it to your crypto journey? Um, I think it's all related, but I think the real reason I fell down encryption and privacy is because of zero knowledge. Like when I heard of the concept of a zero knowledge proof, like you can prove something, verify something without exposing it. Um, that was just an insane moment. You know, that was almost like a discovering Ethereum or discovering Bitcoin or discovering Uniswap moment where you're like, wait, that actually doesn't exist in the real world. Like that concept doesn't exist. And um, it's even now I think about it. I'm like, it seems impossible. Um, 
And so it it is related because privacy and encryption enable autonomy and self-sovereignty. But simultaneously, it's just an insane step function change in tech. Uh, and, and that's part of the reason I was drawn in. Hmm. Maybe you can give a little primer for people who are not technical um, on what a zero-knowledge proof is. Yeah, so a zero-knowledge proof is, like I said, a way to prove something without revealing it. Um, And so my classical normie example is, you know, in college, you go to a bar and there's a bouncer and the bouncer is like, I need your identification to come in. So what are you doing in that transaction? Like you're verifying a number. And when you hand them your driver's license, what the bouncer is doing is just subtracting your birth year from the current year. And if that number is higher than 21, like you're in. And if it's not, you're out. But what happens is you, in the meantime, you have to reveal all this information. Specifically, you have to reveal your birth date. Um, but it, it just so happens on a driver's license, you also reveal like every other personally identifiable piece of information about yourself, like literally your eye color and your height and the actual address where you live, like seems kind of crazy, actually, if you think about it. Um, so what a zero knowledge proof is and to like hand wave the way the technology works is essentially um, instead of handing somebody uh, a, a driver's license with this plain text information, you hand them an encrypted blob and the encrypted blob um, can be run through um, uh, essentially something that proves that you're 21 um, deterministically. So you run the proof. It says for sure that this person is 21 and it doesn't have to reveal the date. There's just this binary outcome. You either are 21 or you're not. um, And then you're let in and you don't have to reveal any of the underlying data. Um, And that's pretty sick. Uh, I think that's a pretty cool idea. And We've been applying it in blockchains for both scaling and privacy. Yeah, it feels like a lot of this is, I don't want to say like the answer to the privacy issues and and all that stuff, Um, but I want to talk about privacy a little bit. What does privacy mean to you? Like, I'm curious how you would even define privacy. Yeah, I mean, I think of privacy on multiple different levels, um, but I think of it really as like a core component to freedom and self-sovereignty and individual rights. If you think about it, um, privacy is kind of the most basic right, especially in a a free market. Like, imagine the complete opposite of privacy, right? Like, imagine if there was a a hypervillain who had, like, a big privacy-exposing laser gun, and he could just point it at your brain and read every single one of your thoughts. You functionally wouldn't really own anything. It would be really hard to own anything, like possess anything, like have any right to anything, because as soon as you had a thought, like it would be stolen, right? Imagine if you just had a proprietary thought, which we do all the time, right? Our thoughts are um, fully discreet. Um, Nobody can read our brains for the most part. And we get to elect like whether to expose what we're thinking at any given time. And in fact, like having unique thoughts uh, is core to any innovation or competitive advantage. And so imagine this world with this hypervillain, like it would be really hard to be not only an individual, um, but it would be really hard to create like a society that functioned. Um, There would be no incentive to think differently because by definition, you could not think differently. You could not have a competitive advantage. You could not 
um, create something net new. Um, so privacy to me is like the most basic right in a society. Um, and it has everything to do with having basic freedom, being basically an individual. Um, and I think these are very Western values, but uh, I happen to strongly you know, believe in freedom and, and self-sovereignty as personal values and you can't do it without privacy. Yeah, the the thought experiment of like what would happen if someone could read your mind all the time and you basically wouldn't be able to hold anything true to you and wouldn't be able to own anything kind of feels like it also fundamentally comes down to a level of control. Like when I think about the ability to share a thought or not share a thought, it's the control and the choice that I can make rather than having absolutely no choice, which I think is kind of interesting in the context of all of this. Um, Partially just because like as you have, you know, people making content online and like knowledge work being a huge part of at least something like the U.S. economy. um, Yeah, the idea of having absolutely no control over your own thoughts is is kind of scary. Do you think that without crypto and and all of that stuff – um, do you think that eventually like our internet would sort of devolve into a a scary version of almost like what you're talking about? Um, I think so. I mean, we happen to be in this middle ground state where there are trusted intermediaries who custody all of our information. But I mean, you see in other, you know, uh, other sovereign nations situations where that data is violated and um, it's exposed to state actors. Um, so is there basically, is there a situation where I could see the United States becoming China? Like, yeah, for sure. Right. And so if you think of privacy as a tool for autonomy, then you can think of anti-privacy. So like giving up all your information as a tool for authoritarianism and others control of you. Um, so yeah, I could, I could easily see the internet going in that direction if these trusted intermediaries just take the wrong turn. And I think you and I had a conversation about this a long time ago, but um, there is kind of something interesting there about saying, okay, well, you know, to not get there, of course, we need some of this technology um, and and the ability to actually have privacy as, as a choice. Um, but it also feels like there is this need for people to actually be motivated to give a shit about privacy, which feels challenging. So I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I, I read somewhere recently that like 30% of internet traffic goes through VPNs. Um, and so there is some like inherent desire for privacy. But one of my contentions is that the privacy positioning is kind of wrong. So at Aztec, we really think about it more as encryption. So what, what we're building is blockchain encryption. And that doesn't necessarily mean something like dramatically different from privacy. But what is privacy? It's a it's a human right, it's a feature, it has positive connotations, but it's not really like a technology, right? Like encryption is the technology and it enables privacy and verifiability together. And so part of it for me is like, it's a branding problem. Privacy has weird connotations. It's not clear what it actually refers to. We broadly want it. It is like a desirable right, but we don't really know what opting into privacy means. Um, and so I think getting people to care about it is partly a branding par- problem. And part of it is, I think, just like blockchain, I consider to be a form of insurance against the status quo, right? 
We have a way of doing things. It's highly centralized. Seems to work right now. But in case it doesn't work, like you'd really like a backup that's like fully decentralized and trustless and verifiable. Well, privacy is like that, but plus a layer where, you know, it's insurance against um, a lack of discretion, um, violations of security. Um, and, and it also adds a huge number of novel use cases that you can't really have without privacy. And we can get into those. Um, but I think getting people to care over time is just a, just like crypt, getting people to care about crypto is just a matter of waiting for traditional institutions to fail. Um, getting people to care about privacy is just a matter of waiting for people to get fish enough and getting their information exposed and watching them have no discretion on blockchains. And these are massive problems that are already facing us today. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I love the reframe towards encryption because privacy reminds me of like um, when you make New Year's resolutions, it's like health or wellness. It's like, okay, sure, I want that. But like how I actually get there is kind of unclear. Whereas yeah. encryption is like, oh, no, it's going to the gym. Like it's it's these very specific things that you are – it's almost an act that you're doing or this tangible way that it manifests um, that does make it feel really different. So that's interesting. Yeah. How would you, I guess, again, for people who are not technical, um, I think a lot of people have an idea of what encryption means. But in this context, I'm actually curious how you would define encryption as well. Um, I mean, zero knowledge encryption is, I think of zero knowledge as like a bunch of squiggly lines, essentially. <laughs> like squiggly lines have these like special characteristics that make them very hard to replicate and uh, without getting too technical, because frankly, I'm not there either. Um, zero knowledge encryption uses uh, the unique characteristic of polynomials, these squiggly lines, um, to make sure that something is uh, verifiably true. Um, so if, if I have a certain amount of information about a big squiggly line, um, the chances that I fake that information are very low, just based on the characteristics of these big squiggles. Um, and so encryption in this case, at least for us, we use encryption to do two things that are very powerful with zero knowledge. One is uh, compression. And so a lot of other, you know, ZK EVM protocols, for instance, use ZKs for, for compression. And that's verifying a bunch of off-chain computation on-chain. And so the proof that encapsulates um, all that off-chain compute is much more succinct than act the, all the actual raw computational data. Um, so we use it for compression, and then we also use it for privacy. And so um, a zero-knowledge proof can also be used for a transaction to uh, wrap something that you want to do on chain and obfuscate it from other people, but also prove that whatever you were computing was correct. And so, you know, sometimes people think of Aztec as a ZK ZK rollup, and we kind of use zero knowledge encryption for, you know, two different use cases. And that's what kind of differentiates us from other, you know, non-private ZK competitors is they're really using zero knowledge for its succinctness properties. And we're using it for both succinctness and for privacy. Hmm. I have what might be a dumb question for you because <laughs> some of the zero no knowledge stuff goes over my head. Something that's like interesting to me as a consumer is that when I'm thinking about encryption or anything that's like a level of privacy that I'm going after or, or feel even more comfortable with, whatever, it's happening on the app side. So like I might choose to use for example, one password manager over another because I know that they're encrypting it client side and, and blah, blah, blah. 
Um, but like at the end of the day, that's happening on an app level. And I do have a choice as a user what I'm using and all of that stuff. But I don't know. It, it's an interesting dynamic because it seems like for some of the like widespread encryption um, that you know, hopefully happens in the future to actually preserve privacy um, to happen, you need a lot of these like application layers to actually build for privacy as opposed to it being like exclusively an individual's choice. Does that, is that a fair way to characterize some of how this landscape might end up playing out? Um, I, I would certainly think that that's true at a network layer, right? Like you need kind of base layer privacy on a network level such that users are defaulting to privacy rather than it being opt in. Um, so I think I think what the goal of Aztec has always been generalizable privacy. If you think about the history of privacy on blockchains, right? Like you start with really simple mixers and they're really expensive and they're single use. Right. It's not very generalizable. And part of the reason why there there's such a problem with mixers and the connotation around mixers is that it's opt in. You know, imagine if blockchains had actually started with base layer privacy, we probably wouldn't have a problem with it. And, mm. you know, like I always bring up the fact that like OFAC banned Tornado Cash, but they didn't ban Ethereum, which like if you actually pull back for a second, doesn't make a ton of sense because it's like there's a ton of illicit hap activity happening on ethereum and by the way there's tons of illicit ha activity happening on you know in banks and on traditional <laughs> rails um but the reason why we don't ban all of ethereum just like the reason why we don't ban all of payments writ large is because like there's this cost benefit analysis you know we believe in order to preserve this fundamental right that like you know we should all have privacy that we're willing to accept some amount of illicit activity and so the problem with privacy on blockchains today is that it's opt in. Like we really need everyone to kind of buy into base layer privacy in order for it not to be weird. Like when a tiny minority elect privacy, then I think you kind of can rightly look at that and be like, hmm, like why are why are those people doing that? And so the goal <laughs> at Aztec is for everyone to just accept it on base layer and for the functionality to not only be equivalent to Ethereum, but higher than Ethereum so that like there's no there's no weirdness about like accepting privacy. It's just like, is a matter of fact. And not only is it a matter of fact, like things can be built on private blockchains that can't be built on public blockchains. And so people should just elect to use it because it has more functionality, not because it's like pure obfuscation. This might be, it might be hard to have an answer to this question, but I'm curious why you think the state up to this point has based, or I guess the default up to this point has basically been, like not to elect privacy and instead to default to everything being public and transparent. I I think the easy like facile answer to that is we just haven't had the technology. Like essentially um before Zach Williamson, RCO and Ariel Gabazon, um uh Aztec's former chief scientist um invented Planck, like there was no efficient way to build zero knowledge proofs. Um and so we kind of forewent privacy. And by we, I mean like Vitalik, forewent privacy because, you know, the goal was trustlessness and verifiability, right? We all mm -hmm. should be able to look at the ledger and and individually be like, I don't need to trust a single entity. I can look at it myself and confirm that it's correct. Um, and I can verify that all the computation was done correctly. Um, and that was the priority. And in order to get there, essentially everything needed to be in plain text. Like everything just needed to be out in the open. That's the easiest way to get trustlessness and verifiability. Like we can all look at it. So like done, 
like both boxes are checked. It's really like not until now, essentially, that we have the technology to get trustlessness and verifiability, but also discretion and privacy. Like we just didn't literally have the math. Hmm. Interesting. I guess when I think about to some of the reasons or some of the ways in which transparency and um, like public ledgers have been really helpful, I do think that there are aspects of ease of seeing into what's happening that have probably helped the space at least move forward in a lot of ways. Um, I think like things like accountability and, and all of that have been really helpful. Like I now can figure out if I know your ETH address, like all of the NFTs that you own, for example. Um, and, you know, if you're a scammer, like that actually might be helpful. You know, there are all these aspects. Um, what does that look like in a world where you have widespread use of ZK proofs and things to to have encrypted data? Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, I think I want to start actually with this contention that like everything being plain text in public was for the better because, you know, it enforces transparency and crypto being the narrative engine that it is. I wonder whether that's not just like a post hoc justification for hmm. a trade off that we didn't really want to make in the first place. Like we had to kind of like do it this way. So now we kind of post hoc justify it by being like, oh, well, sour grapes, like it was for the better. Like we didn't have privacy, <laughs> but like isn't transparency just like the best way of doing things anyway, guys? And I'm not fully convinced. And, you know, to, to take that further, like the goal at Aztec and I think in general on blockchains is not fully private and anonymized. Like clearly there are things in the public domain that deserve to be in the public domain. And there are things that need to be, you know, fully discreet and they need to be private. And so Aztec's next generation encrypted blockchain is going to be a public-private blockchain. So there will be public smart contracts and variables and functions, and there will be private smart contracts and variables and functions. And that's the way it should be. There should be this seamless interaction between you know, things that have to be public. For instance, there are some things that by definition are public because of their permissionlessness. You know, automated market makers are like a really good example of this. Like X times Y equals K, like that formula doesn't exist unless like everyone can see the clearing price. But that means like there will never be privacy on an AMM. But you can have like mm. private wallets interacting with an AMM. That's okay. And so the goal is not like one or the other. It's not black or white. It's not fully private or fully public. It's programmable. It's flexible. Like some, some things require discretion and some not. And if you think about our society, like let's look at governance, right? Like even our like traditional society's governance, like we also dial discretion up and down. For instance, for an individual voter, like privacy is the standard and it would be unconscionable not to have like individual voter privacy. Why? Because there's like, you know, things like intimidation and, um, you know, voter fraud. And like there, there, there's all these things that make it so that like private voting um, or public voting, having to vote in the public would be a problem. But then you look at our representatives and they have to vote publicly. Why? Because like there's accountability there and there's social pressure. And we need to see that like our elected representatives are actually, you know, representing the will of the people. And so there's no reason why in blockchains, like we shouldn't have that tool to like turn privacy up and down. And that's how we think about things where privacy is just another tool. Encryption is just another tool that you can use. It's not an ideology. It's not like if it's not private, like it's never going to work. Like there are tons of value to having public information. That's really interesting. And then I guess the question becomes how you decide what should be private and public, which I could imagine an, a, being a very interesting dynamic moving forward at, as we build these like little digital societies. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious how you think about those factors. Like in what worlds do you think, I mean, you mentioned intimidation of voters and things like that. Also things like accountability for elected representatives potentially being um, sort of a, a design pattern for having more transparent uh, information. But I'm curious if there are other sort of factors or variables that come to mind for you when you think about what type of information would optimally be private or public. I mean, this is up to mechanism designers to think about like how they want protocols to function. Like, I think one maybe unstated, maybe untrue fact about um, DAO governance right now is that like it is public, but like there's all these private machinations happening in the background. Like you, you know, texting friends and being like, hey, I need you to like, you know, throw in your votes to like make sure this proposal passes. And mm -hmm. so like that just happens to be the dominant game theory, like the meta of like the way voting happens right now. And with privacy, maybe that maybe you just change the game somewhat. Like with privacy, you can still text your friend. You can still be like, Chase, I need you to vote yay on this proposal. And you just I just won't know whether you voted yay or nay. Like that type of like explicit social pressure is not going to exist anymore. And so mm -hmm. my contention is that encryption being just like another mechanism design tool is going to create like a much larger topography of use cases and um and dynamics that we're just not seeing now. Like we live in a universe where everything has to be public and that just leads to games being designed in a very specific way. Another like really trivial example is if I wanted to play a card game with you, right? Like on Ethereum, we need to have all our cards be face up, generally speaking. Um, and that's like just, you know, there, there are some games that are fun with all the cards face up, but sometimes there are games that are more fun where you can flip the cards up or down. Um, if I wanted to play poker with you, it would be a lot more fun if all the cards were hidden and there were these uncertain, you know, uncertainties about, you know, which cards I had and which cards you had and who's going to have the winning hand. And, you know, we just don't have that mechanism at our disposal right now. And so I find governance to be an interesting one because, you know, the way it works now, there is this 11th hour problem, for instance, where you can see all the votes that are going out in public. And it behooves you to kind of wait until the very last minute, garner your votes in, in private, and then kind of like blast them all out like at the 11th hour. And like maybe that dynamic changes with private voting. Um, and I, I don't really have necessarily like a value judgment on whether it's quote unquote better or worse, but it is additive. It is like a net new way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially in the context when I think about like it's funny because we've almost – I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to use it. We've almost been like spoiled with all of the data that we have for better or for worse. Like in some cases, that has not been super helpful to your point about like the card games or, or other things where like it's actually limiting what we can do. Um, but in some ways, it's pretty powerful. For example, the person who's saying, you know, you, you come to me and you say, Chase, I need you to vote a certain way. Like it's to your benefit to be able to see the way that I vote um, and sort of test whether or not I voted in the way that you wanted me to. And so mm -hmm. I'm very intrigued to see if there's pushback in the ecosystem um, from people who do want the level of transparency and um, public data, almost like against this data not being available anymore. Of course, I think to your point, like there's assigning a moral judgment to it across the board doesn't make sense. And it's definitely like a sort of like a local optimal type of situation. But I don't know. It's interesting. I'm curious to see how that dynamic works out in the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with that. It, I think because it's 
ingrained as the status quo, like we've learned to deal with it, right? Like vote bribing is a mechanism that at the time, you know, it became popularized, um, seemed like a genius idea because it was like, okay, well, there's, there are already these dynamics with public voting. We might as well like bake in an economic price, right? We, we might as well make a market for voting. And like, yeah, it, it disrupts the status quo if you go, okay, all of a sudden votes are private and the same, you know, economic market for governance like no longer exists. And maybe that'll upset people. Maybe people are like, wait, I actually, I, I built my whole fill in the blank career protocol, you know, business model around the fact that everything would be public forever. Um, but I also think that's really exciting, right? Like what business models are we robbing ourselves of because we don't have privacy? Like that, that's what I'm excited to see. Totally. And to your point about the status quo, um, going back to what you said earlier, I really like the idea of encryption as this almost like insurance against the status quo. I think that's a really interesting model for looking at a lot of this stuff um, in the same way that blockchain is insurance against the status quo. And to your point, like that starts to unlock new and interesting um, use cases that we might not have considered before. Which makes me wonder, um, what kind of use cases are you very excited about when it comes to this technology? I mean, a big one I talked about uh, just now was gaming, right? Just having mm -hmm. the privacy component of game mechanics. Um, and we were already seeing people build very simple toys, right? Like there's a team um, that is an Aztec Grants recipient called Battlezips. It's just battleships on chain. Mm. Seems kind of silly, right? But like, actually, it's a pretty complex problem on a public blockchain because you have to obscure your opponent's ship locations. You have to register the hits appropriately. And it all needs to be like verified that when you land a hit, you know, whether it actually struck one of your opponent's ships. And that seems all very silly, but you can think of um, situations in business like, you know, contracts or agreements where there can be something um, that's discreet but provable whether an action was committed or not. And so uh, I'm really excited about gaming. Um, DeFi is a huge one. I think people have been talking a lot about dark pools and um, encrypted exchanges, uh, which is a really interesting way for individual actors to obscure their order flow. Um, and I'm also really excited for governance and DAOs. I mean, these are the major categories. Um, governance we talked about already, right? Like, very basic business functions like paying your employees has to happen in public. Now, again, I think we kind of post hoc justify that. We're like, man, isn't it so great that everyone's salaries are public? I'm 100% sure if you interviewed a thousand CEOs, like 995 would be like having my employees' salaries be public is terrible for me. <laughs> um, so I think we like post hoc justify that a little bit. And then NFTs, I think, are a fun one too. Like, there are tons of NFT games like blind auctions um, and private transfers and obscuring the origin of, you know, who owns what amount of what collection um, that make for more interesting games. And so, you know, I don't want to say it's all take public blockchains and sprinkle privacy on top of it. Um, but I do think there are these like incremental mechanics that make all the games that we're designing more fun and more interesting. Yeah, I'm also curious. I feel like in the conversation about... Um privacy. There's definitely like the governance stuff, the gaming stuff makes a lot of sense. Um, of course, DeFi. Identity definitely comes up a lot in the realm of privacy. And I'm curious how you think about that. Because even in the case of like the, the very simplistic example of the ID at the bar, right? Like 
fundamentally, that's kind of an identity question. And so I'm curious how you think uh, some of the stuff will play into the world of identity. Yeah, identity is a really exciting one. I think it happens to be a situation where I think there need to be some centralization trade-offs, especially when it comes to compliance. Now, I do think zero-knowledge privacy and encryption have um, a lot of potential for creating more compliant blockchains without violating user privacy. For instance, this notion of like KYC pools. You can go to a centralized service provider who then assigns you, you know, a ZK NFT that um, describes your real world identity. And then you don't have to reveal your real real world identity to anyone on chain. You can just furnish this ZK membership NFT that says, like, I've verified this. You don't need to know anything else about me. You just need to know that, like, my identity is verified. And there's a huge amount of potential around, you know, Sybil um, and on chain credit. Um that allows people to actually affirm their identity without having to reveal anything about themselves. Um, I, I'm sure there will be decentralized efforts to to figure that out and tie real world identity or you know kind of some kind of social consensus identity uh, to your on chain behavior. But that's like a really simple one where compliance doesn't really seem uh, very palatable to individuals right now, because if I do want to get KYC'd and then I use a public blockchain, then like I'm for sure giving up like a ton of valuable information about who I am and what my activity is. Um, and without using some kind of mixer today, like it, it, it doesn't really seem possible. Hmm. One last final question on this stuff. Do you think that like the early adopters, people who are currently using crypto kind of like, I don't want to say screwed ourselves over, but like almost a little bit based on the sheer amount of information that we've revealed about ourselves on the internet, on a public blockchain that is going to be there forever? Um, That's a great question. I do think that there's uh, going to be, there's a lot of inertia in public blockchains, not just, you know, from inside our community, inside crypto, but among regulators, like there is a narrative that I could tell that like chain analysis is the only reason crypto exists. Right. And it's Mm. like an incredible surveillance tool. Like public information is an incredible surveillance tool. And actually we're in this like kind of fun for the FBI paradigm right now (laughs) where like people think blockchains obscure information, but they like fully do not. And so you know, you you see this with like the Bitfinex hackers getting caught, right? Like they're like, we're so clever. We're sending it to all these different Bitcoin addresses. And the FB, FBI straight up is like, we we saw everything. We saw every single coin. Like we we <laughs> tracked like where they all went. Like we knew we knew their every step, right? And so that's like a great paradigm for the surveillance state. It's a great paradigm for governments. So I think for governments, it'll be really hard for them to go to a state where it's like, Oh, it's actually all obfuscated now, right? And you're kind mm. of seeing early resistance because they've been given this gift. They've been given a gift of full visibility. Imagine if they could just, I mean, they kind of already do with traditional rails, but even to the next degree, right? Like I can see all your Venmo transactions. Like I can see like every single time you've ever had any economic activity in your life. And there's all this like public, all these public analytics tools that like make it really easy for me to track. Now imagine you know, as a community, we go to the governments and we say, um, actually, no, we're going to put this all behind closed doors now. I think it'd be really hard. Think of yourself as a, as a bureaucrat to go from like, I have this like incredible surveillance tool to like not having that tool at all. 
And so I think mm. one of the challenges that blockchain and like, you know, privacy advocates like ourselves face is like making sure governments are like, okay with that transition. And there's going to be a ton of work around there. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend it's going to be easy because, you know, one of the keys um, to government control is like com compliance is this, um, it's this way to force someone to do something. And in a decentralized blockchain environment where there's not a single neck to choke, like it's hard to comply, right? Like how does the Ethereum community like comply? It's like kind of like permissionless technology. And so I, I do believe that zero knowledge encryption is a pathway to being both private and compliant or at least private and making governments happy, whatever that looks mm. like. You know, I think compliance is a very loaded word. But I think once our representatives and government bureaucrats see that like this is um, a key it upholds the values of Western societies and democracies. Um, it preserves like a lot of what's already enshrined in American law, um, which is a right to privacy, right? Um, and it's an economic driver. Um, I think they're going to hopefully be willing to take a couple trade-offs or at least be willing to work with us on figuring out a way that like they can control illicit behavior without having this like full surveillance environment. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, even the idea that like, there's now this new technology that's come along that says, hey, we can still play by your rules and do the things that you need us to do in order to do your job and make sure people aren't doing things that you've decided are illegal. But we're also going to preserve our own privacy. Like That's a pretty interesting response to a world in which it feels like our privacy is constantly being traded off and often we're not even part of that conversation. So- it's exactly. interesting. Exactly. It's very promising. Um, well, this was a wonderful conversation. John, where can people learn more about you and Aztec? Yeah, so we're on Twitter, twitter.com slash Aztec Network or discord.gg slash Aztec. Um, and you can find me at J-O-N-W-U underscore on Twitter. Beautiful. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Chase. It was a pleasure. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.